Greetings, and welcome to Pound the Rock, the Scores NBA podcast. I'm Joe Wolfond, and I'm joined remotely, as always, by my co-host, Joseph Cacharo. Cash, what's going on, man? Uh, not good news in the Bay. Yeah, seriously. Um, we're recording this the day after what was a fairly hectic draft day, complete with, as you mentioned, some... Really deflating news for the Golden State Warriors, a few interesting transactions, and of course the draft itself, which I think did not really produce the kind of chaos that maybe it seemed like it was going to, given all the trade buzz that was building up uh, you know, in the weeks leading up to the draft. But sort of on the periphery of the draft itself was a lot of interesting and in the Warriors case potentially landscape altering stuff and I do think Golden State is where we need to start Uh, news coming down today that as feared the worst has happened for Clay Thompson he seemingly has suffered an Achilles tear which happened during a pickup run yesterday and man I like that day for the Golden State Warriors I mean it starts with all the promise in the world, right? This team that is looking to get its dynasty back on track after taking a one-year pause. Clay is coming back. Steph's coming back. They have the number two pick in the draft, which they are talking to other teams about potentially trading it. There were talks about them trading it to the Bulls for Wendell Carter and just moving down to number four. We didn't know the kind of player they were going to target with that pick. There was a lot up in the air, but most of it was hopeful and optimistic and full of possibility. And then all the air just kind of goes out of that team when the news about clay comes down. And if you're a basketball fan, this this just sucks, right? Like I think clay Thompson is one of the most likable dudes in the league. And I, I was really excited to see that warriors trio back together again. Clay hasn't, played in a game for 17 months. The last time we saw him on a court, he was playing, without exaggeration, the best basketball of his career. Having a a game six for the ages in the finals before tearing his ACL and spends all this time essentially working his way back, uh, trying to get back to the level that he was at and help the Warriors compete for a championship again. And uh, before he has a chance to do that, he suffers this Achilles tear, which is going to keep him out for all of the 2020-21 season. And to me, I think this, unless James Wiseman, and we can get into talking about that pick in a minute, but unless Wiseman is pretty much right away ready to be a serious impact contributor, I think this spells the end of the Warriors dynasty, the end of their championship hopes, because for Clay. I was already skeptical about what he was going to look like coming back from the ACL tear, which has ruined careers in the past. And, you know, Clay's 30 years old, but then you tack on the Achilles tear. And now you're talking about not only is he going to be coming back with two of the most devastating injuries that an athlete can suffer in his rear view. A basketball player, gonna, especially. Yeah, 100%. And he's going to be 31. And Steph's going to be a year older and Draymond's going to be a year older. And I just think that this kind of closes that window. So I'll kick it over to you. Do you have anything you want to add to that? Like, Not really. I mean, look, by the time Clay Thompson is back on the court, it will have been roughly, if not at least, 
two and a half years since we last saw him on an NBA court. Two and a half years between games for a guy that's over 30 and, as you mentioned, uh, will be coming off two of the most devastating and career-altering injuries. An athlete and specifically a basketball player can endure. It's it's not looking good. Uh, you know, you mentioned like Clay being one of the most likable guys in the league, which he absolutely is. It's also just the, and I know it's a little cliche, but you know, the whole Warriors mantra and the Steve Kerr era Warriors mantra of playing with joy, that wasn't just hyperbole. They really did play with a sense of um, joyful purpose that was fun to watch, you know, unless your team was losing to them, which most NBA fans teams were losing to them, but there was still a uh, a joy and an entertainment value and a, you know, it's weird. Like even when they were obviously not the, like when they were the 73 win warriors and, you know, everyone wanted to beat them, there was still a sense of wonder. You know, it was different when KD went there, people started hating them a little more and they wanted to beat them in a different way. But without Durant and especially like the Splash Brothers tandem, even even when they were kicking your ass, there was this like sense of wonder and appreciation for what they were doing and the way they were going about it. And and so, yeah, I agree with you that it's, um, you know, obviously first and foremost, it sucks for Clay, and then for the Warriors and for Warriors fans, but just for basketball fans in general, it's really shitty, man. It is really shitty. And I probably have said this every single time we've recorded an episode shortly after a big injury to a star, but another reminder that you just never know. And I know obviously you can say that for life in general. It's not, um, you know, reserved for basketball or pro sports, but for real, you never know in pro sports, man. And like the best laid plans and the grandest ambitions for the future, no matter how far out you want to project are always, always just hanging by a thread, you know, and some teams hang by thicker threads because of the infrastructure and the, the talent they have, but they're still hanging by threads. And uh, yeah, you know, we, we literally just three days ago, if anyone listened to our last episode and, and myself, especially was going on about how I thought if they stay healthy, the Warriors could finish ahead of one of the LA teams in the standings were very much so like right back in the championship mix. I didn't even need to see anything from that. I was just ready to say, if they're healthy, they're right back in it. Um, I'm high on James Wiseman, uh, at least I think higher than a lot of people. I wrote about him last week after talking to the guy that's been training him. I, like I was just super hopeful for this team as a lot of people were. And, and yeah, now it's dashed. I mean, I don't know, like realistically, if the rest of them stay healthy, like if Steph plays the majority of games, if Draymond, you know, isn't peak Draymond, but rediscovers some of the pep in his step, if Wiggins is just like, a solid number two score, you know, and that's actually asking way too much of Andrew Wiggins, but whatever. So, you know what? I wouldn't even say that. I'll just say if Wiggins is Andrew Wiggins, but Steph is great. Draymond's healthy. Wiggins is Wiggins. And Wiseman is just like a solid, not like a rookie of the year candidate, not a game changer, but like a solid rim protector and finisher on the pick and roll. Like, is this a playoff team? Uh, I think they're on, they're on the bubble. But yeah, and, like and that's a, and that's a with a lot of that's, sorry, that's with a lot going right. <laughs> yeah, I mean, look, when I, I know it's not going to be the same team, but th- those first few games when Steph was healthy last year, they looked terrible, and I think their biggest issue was like they just didn't. There wasn't enough shooting around Steph. There wasn't enough complimentary playmaking around him, 
And every defense you saw was just loading up on him with virtually no consequences. And I feel like there's a distinct possibility that something similar to that is going to happen again. Now, the Warriors have this $17 million trade exception from the Iguodala trade last year, and they have five days to use it. Bob Myers said yesterday, essentially, that he got the green light from ownership to do that. And I think it's pretty clear that they need a lot of help on the wing. And that is what they're going to use that trade exception to do. So anyone strike your fancy as guys that they could potentially target to bring in? I mentioned Ubre, who I think the Thunder are definitely going to be, if not looking to move, then open to moving. He's only got one year left on his deal, but he fits into that exception. He's 24 and has some room to grow, I think. Obviously, he's not giving you what Thompson was giving you in terms of shooting and off-ball movement, but I, I do think he's a smart off-ball player. Like, Not necessarily as like a spot-up threat with a ton of gravity, but he's a smart cutter, and he's got really nice length and I think has a lot of potential as a defender as well. So I think that would be somebody that they could target who'd be gettable. Can you use a trade exception as part of a signing trade? That I'm not sure of. I would have to double check. Because if you can, do you know who I'm thinking of? Bogdanovich? That's correct. Bogdan Bogdanovich, <laughs> who may be a good way to segue, <laughs> might be back on the market. <laughs> I don't want to segue there just yet because I, I do want to talk about the Wiseman pick. And I'm wondering, so you're high on Wiseman. I wrote a piece essentially kind of going through the the history and the modern day implications of using a super high pick on a big man and especially a non-shooting, non-playmaking big man. And I think there's some optimism that Wiseman can eventually add some stretch to his game, but he's not a playmaker. He profiles, at least for now, as kind of a rim runner who ideally is going to be, you know, a rim runner slash rim protector, right? I think the the upside for him lies probably more at the defensive end of the floor than at the offensive end of the floor. And I think if Clay was healthy, I definitely saw the fit there because you wouldn't necessarily need him to develop a significant amount of offensive polish in order for him to fit snugly and, and be effective in that rim runner role. But I think especially given that you also kind of need Draymond to be a rim runner, that fit feels a little bit tenuous to me. And I'm not doubting that, you know, I think Wiseman has a super high floor. He, I think rightly was seen as basically like the safest prospect in the draft just because of his ridiculous physical tools. I mean, he's seven foot one and can jump out of the gym with a seven, six wingspan. Yeah. Just like a ridiculous catch radius, right? Where, if, if he's running pick and roll with Steph, then the, the kind of vertical gravity that he's going to present, I think is going to make life easier for Steph in a lot of ways as well. But I, I think it's less a question of whether he can carve out, you know, a long and fairly productive NBA career than it is a question of is somebody with that high floor, but possibly a, a pretty low ceiling, the kind of guy that you want to use a number two pick on? And especially after they got the news about Clay, I was wondering, you know, would that change their thinking? Would they pivot maybe toward taking a guard or a wing? You know, would that nudge them toward taking LaMelo? And they didn't. They wound up taking Wiseman, which seemed kind of like the obvious pick for them the entire time if they weren't going to trade it. I don't know. I, I, I don't... 
given that now like their ceiling as a team seems to have lowered considerably, I don't know if the kind of the floor that Wiseman offers them is really the right way to go. But what do you think? Well, I think, look, this boils down to the fact this draft stinks. And so uh, for the Warriors, while Wiseman fits in the short term, and I want to clarify, when I say I'm high on Wiseman, like I'm not high on him in the sense that I think he can be a franchise player or anything close to a franchise savior. I don't think there are any of those in this draft. I was high on him for some of the reasons you mentioned about the high floor and also how I thought as the safest pick and as a guy that actually does things that could help the Warriors and where I thought the Warriors were pre-clay injury, I really did think, despite the fact that it's very rare for rookies and especially rookie bigs to be immediate impact players and especially on the defensive end, I actually did think a lot of what James Wiseman did well was perfect for what the Warriors needed or lacked if they did lack anything. And so I thought I was high on Wiseman as an immediate impact guy and especially high on him as someone who perfectly fit where the Warriors were and and could legitimately help them this year as they try to contend for another championship. The other thing I'll say is even without Clay, obviously a lot of that goes out the window because they're, they're not competing for a championship now, but I still understand the pick from their perspective because, again, I'm assuming they, like a lot of others, and like I'm saying right now, probably did not see any franchise changes in this draft. You know, there was reports last week, I can't remember who reported it, but the quote was that like Steve Kerr was enamored with James Wiseman, that they loved what they saw in him, they liked uh, the workouts, the interviews, and that they did see like a bright future for him in the base. So it, it didn't really surprise me that they didn't go maybe with a LaMelo ball or all of a sudden someone else because maybe the ceiling was higher because I, I don't know how much the Warriors or anyone else believes in those guys. And I think clay or no clay, they genuinely believed in James Wiseman as much as you can believe in anyone in this draft class. And so, yeah, that's what it is. But yeah, do, do I think James Wiseman's going to be, you know, the second coming for them or the next Warriors superstar or even all-star? Maybe not. But I really did think that he could have been the perfect bridge, you know, to crack open their championship window now while, while at least being a bridge to the future, you know. And now I, I, I think that window might have already closed, unfortunately, before he could even run a single pick and roll for this team. <laughs> I I think to be a bridge to the future, the ceiling maybe needs to be a little bit higher. Uh, who knows? I mean, maybe Wiseman does sort of fill out his game and the skill development is, is such that he can actually be a franchise cornerstone and that could make him a bridge player. But if he is, you know, DeAndre Jordan 2.0, then that to me isn't a guy who can be a bridge from one era of contention to another necessarily. And I think... Just as far as resource allocation, I would have preferred to see them trade down. And, you know, maybe Wiseman still would have been there. Or if they really wanted to take a big, they could have gone after Okongwu or somebody else who can approximate that skill set, which those kind of guys are always available later in the draft. And if that could have led to them pulling in somebody like a Wendell Carter, or there was also a report that the Celtics were talking to them uh, in a deal involving Marcus Smart in exchange for the number two pick. Uh, I thought thought there were like a lot of different avenues they could have gone that I would have liked more than what they ultimately did. But time will obviously tell. And, you know, the big news right now obviously is just that, uh, they've suffered a devastating blow. Clay Thompson has suffered a devastating blow. And this team that for the longest time, I mean, just everything went right for them. 
you know, between the bargain extension that they got Stefan to the one year cap spike that allowed them to sign Durant until everything suddenly just started to go wrong and wrong and wrong. And suddenly, you know, this team can't seem to catch a break. So, yeah, I don't know. I, I think, you know, this to me definitely takes them out of the running and contention for next year and might take them out of the playoff picture entirely. But you mentioned the Bogdanovich situation and breaking news, Shams Charania has reported that the Bucks have waived Ursan Ilyasova. He was on a non-guaranteed deal, which they had initially used in the framework for the sign and trade. And there was obviously a lot of speculation. Well, is this deal actually off? Or is this all just a charade, essentially, to cover their tracks and avoid a tampering violation from the league? Because the Bucks were not allowed to be negotiating with Bogdanovich before the moratorium was lifted for free agents. And it seems like, no, this deal is actually off. So no Bogdan Bogdanovich for the Bucks. It's obviously not great uh, because it seemed like the two moves that they made, you know, the holiday trade was sort of made in conjunction with the Bogdanovich trade and the kind of ridiculous return that they sent out for holiday was in some way excused by the fact that they were also getting Bogdanovich and not sending out a crazy return in that deal in a vacuum. I think now maybe that holiday trade looks a little bit worse, but oh, it looks worse, <laughs> but at the same time, I think there is a way that they can rebound from this because they now have a, element of financial flexibility that they didn't have before because they were going to be hard capped and that was going to put them in a bit of a bind as far as filling out the rest of their roster and now I think their starting five probably isn't going to be as good but they'll have a chance to actually build out their depth in a way that Mike Budenholzer wants (laughs) so yeah what what do you think uh, about all this madness Uh, it's a calamity for the Bucks. Is it going to be the difference between whether Giannis resigns or not? I don't know, maybe not. But their entire course of action on Monday, and rightfully so, was just reeked of desperation, right? Which we all can understand because they're a small market team trying to do whatever they need to do to hang on to a generational superstar. But as you just mentioned, a lot of the stuff that we kind of looked the other way on with the holiday stuff, like, yeah, we criticized the deal, but we also said, you know, they got better. Bogdanovich comes in. Um, you know, maybe the reason they didn't even engage on Chris Paul is because they wanted to do this in a way where they could execute that sign and trade for Bogdan. And so this was the way getting Drew was the way to do it, and it worked out, and blah, blah, blah. That's all out the window now. And obviously, there's no way they could have known this was going to happen. But at the same time, it's like, you know, hindsight <laughs> will tell you, like, damn, maybe you should have just tried to make the best deal you could have made and gone and got freaking Chris Paul, as I said three days ago, right? Um, I don't know, man. It's it's a gong show. You know, I, I think we'd both love to be flies on the wall when all this is going down and figure out where exactly the blame lies. And I'm sure there's some blame to go around and to be shared. But I don't, like, I don't know how much I buy. I, I don't buy it. I didn't really buy it at all. And I guess now the proof is in the pudding it's not the case but you know like you you were saying that last night a lot of people were talking about how maybe this was just kind of a, a bit of a ruse between the bucks and kings and bogdanovich just to evade any tampering charges and then friday 6 p.m comes or whenever and all of a sudden the agreement would be back on the way i kind of 
envision this whole scenario was probably more along the lines of a i mean there's a potential that it was just the kings being the kings and being grossly incompetent and maybe like there was a cross signals a miscommunication between them and Bogdanovich's camp we shouldn't rule that out like the kings have never surprised us in that regard but I think the most likely scenario here, and it's not something that's all that's foreign, like it's happened before in NBA history, is that a restricted free agent might have had, you know, a wink, wink under the table deal with a team like uh, Milwaukee as part of this sign and trade, saw the number he was going to make and was okay with it, was fine with it, was willing to do it. But until Friday comes and you can actually agree even verbally, or until Sunday comes and you can actually sign anything, there is nothing stopping one of the other teams, you know, and the few that have cap space from also engaging in under the table talk and maybe reaching out to Bogdan Bogdanovich's representation and, and saying, hey, sounds like, you know, he's going to get about 15 a year and $60 million as part of this deal. Just to let you know, if you haven't fully committed to anything, which you obviously haven't because that's against the rules, we've got, I don't know, 17 a year lined up. Like, I I don't know what the number is, but the point is it's not that, like, I think that is actually the most realistic situation here, the most realistic scenario. And whether that's Atlanta, as some people have reported or who else, I don't know. But yeah, like, (sighs) I mean, it it can't really be that many other teams. Like there are four (laughs) teams that would have enough cap space to go above 15 million if it was a straight up offer sheet. And, And if it's not Milwaukee, it's another team that's, you know, essentially doing the same thing, tampering in order to try and work out a sign and trade. And I don't see the Kings in this situation. Like they obviously liked the return they were getting from the Bucks. So I don't see them working out another under the table sign and trade with Bogdanovich, in which case, you know, the only teams that could sign him to an offer sheet that would go above and beyond what the Bucks could have given him in that sign and trade framework is like Atlanta, Charlotte, the Knicks, and who am I forgetting? Like Detroit, maybe or Detroit. I think although I, can, I feel like Detroit actually has uh, yeah, they ate the Ariza contract, yeah. so they they only have like ten million in space now. So it, there's not that many teams that could actually do it, which is why the sign and trade made so much sense. Because if Bogdanovich wants to go to a contender, then this is how it's going to have to happen. And by all accounts, I mean. Brian Windhorst especially has been banging this drum that Bogdanovich wanted to go to Milwaukee, wanted to play with Giannis. So I I don't know actually if he is the one who is driving all this. I I really just am so curious what exactly happened here, whether there was a communication mix up as was reported that, you know, Bogdanovich never actually agreed to the deal, which seems unlikely or whether this was just the league found out was really unhappy about it. Other GMs around the league were really unhappy about it. And amid the fear of a potential penalty that could have involved losing future draft picks or just like a heavy fine, the Bucks essentially decided that they were going to back out and not pursue this trade because it would have contravened the CBA. And now they're just sort of moving on and looking to do something different. Yeah, I mean, that's obviously a very real possibility too. Whatever the explanation is, the fact of the matter is, it seems like the Bucs are not getting Bogdan Bogdanovich. And so the only way to view what they've done thus far this offseason is that they gave up control of five first-round picks, Eric Bledsoe and George Hill, for 
either a one-year rental of Drew Holiday or to lock up Drew Holiday into his mid-30s. Not exactly a great piece of business, you know? And I get it. I get it. They they made that deal in conjunction with what they thought they were. That's fine. But unfortunately, that's no longer the case. And so we can only judge what is there. And what is there looks bad. It looks bad? Giving up... If, if, if all you knew was that the Milwaukee Bucks gave up Eric Bledsoe, George Hill, and control of five first-rounders for Drew Holiday. Would you say that's a good deal? No, I wouldn't say it's a good deal in a vacuum, but I would still understand that deal and why the Bucks had to make it. And I wouldn't necessarily say they were wrong to make it. So I still think the Bucks are going to be a really, really good team. I still think Holiday is going to help them in the playoffs way more than Hill or Bledsoe would have. And I think that's still the most important thing. They're still in a position to have a fantastic season and then keep Giannis long-term and potentially keep Holiday long-term as well. In which case, you know, you have Giannis, Middleton, Holiday as a three-man core, and those guys are surrounded by, for at least a couple more years, Brooke Lopez, who is, you know, one of the best three and D bigs in the league. And then, I don't know know, about the three anymore. He's... I don't know about well, the three anymore. It's been like a year and a half. He was a, a shade over 30% last year, which I understand is not great, but the volume is there and he garners respect from opposing defenses, which is almost more important than the accuracy itself. And was one of the best defensive centers in the league last year as well. Oh, the, yeah, yeah. The, the defense, so, no argument. You know, between those four guys and then I, maybe they try to, use DiVincenzo in a different trade or they just hang on to him in which case I think he's a nice young piece to have like a a feisty defender a sneaky good rebounder a guy who is starting to develop his off the dribble game a little bit like that's a perfectly acceptable role player to have you know with two more years of team control and now they again have the flexibility to potentially go and use the mid-level and keep adding in a way that, you know, know, they're not going to be completely constrained in a way that they would have with that hard cap in place. So I don't think it's so doom and gloom. I would have liked the team better, especially as a playoff team, if they had made that Bogdanovich deal. But I don't think this is like apocalyptic for the Bucks. It's not apocalyptic, but it's embarrassing too, man. Like it's, this is, um, this is King's level behavior. And as a team trying to keep the two-time reigning MVP, you don't want to be associated with that kind of behavior. It's it's just it's a terrible look, man, for all involved, except Bog. Like if Bogdan gets more money, all the power to him. But I think for the Kings and Bucks, it's just a bad look. Yeah, and, and I I mean, who, who the blame should ultimately fall on is like Doesn't it's matter. impossible to tell right now. But you know, mate, like the Bucks could have thought they were sort of negotiating in good faith with the Kings because the Kings actually were allowed to talk to Bogdanovich, right? Him being their own free agent. So I guess I'm assuming the Bucks were talking to the Kings. The Kings thought they had an agreement from Bogdanovich and arguably actually did. And then the mistake was the Bucks leaking that trade, which I do think that, that leak probably came from the Bucks. And that getting out before the moratorium was actually lifted is probably what raised some alarm bells. Like that seems to me like most likely what had happened. The other possibility is that the Kings actually 
didn't clear this with Bogdanovich, but told the Bucks that they had, which is what I think Woj initially reported had scuttled the deal. And in that case, you can't really fault the Bucks for it at all. Like that would just be gross incompetence on the part of the Kings. And it's the Bucks who would really suffer for it. I mean, not that this is great for the Kings either, right? Like they could potentially still, I guess, work out a sign and trade with Bogdanovich, but I feel like in a way they lose their leverage here a bit because now the rest of the league knows that they're not really interested in actually matching any offer sheet. Right. But the the thing is the Kings are playing Juco ball. Like who cares? The Kings are playing in the junior college division here. And like, you know, the Bucks are the ones with the stake. And so I get what you're saying. Yeah, I, I agree. It looks terrible on the Kings, as I said, but this is Kings. Even if it is the Kings fault, it's Kings like behavior. We expect this of them. There's a reason they're the Sacramento Kings and they haven't made the playoffs since 1962. But the point is, the Bucks are the ones with the stakes. And so even if this isn't their fault, the way it's all unfolded is just, it hurts them more than it hurts the Kings or Bogdan Bogdanovich, clearly. What's up, Pound the Rock listeners? Just a friendly reminder to rate, review, and subscribe to Pound the Rock on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. You can also check out The Score's other sports podcasts. For Major League Baseball, there's Expand the Zone. For soccer, we've got Sweeper Keeper. Puck Pursuit has you covered for the NHL. And the Fantasy Football Podcast with Justin Boone covers, you guessed it, fantasy football. And in case you haven't already, download the Score app, available on iPhone and Android. That's where you can find all of our feature content, as well as live scores, updates, and breaking news. Now back to the show. Another team you wrote about on draft day was the Sixers, who had a really interesting and I think a pretty productive day in what was sort of the the first big showcase for Daryl Morey at the head of this front office. So why don't you start us off here? What do you think of what the Sixers did and the spot that they're in now compared to where they were at a couple days ago? I thought they had a great day, man. I thought you could talk me into the fact that they they had the best draft day of anyone, and it doesn't necessarily have to do with the draft itself. But yeah, look, we, how many times did we talk on this show? Did we tweet about? Did we write about? Did we make videos like about how hamstrung this Sixers roster was and how inflexible it was because it just seemed like they had run out of options. Elton Brand didn't do a great job, you know, managing assets and. They ended up in this situation where because of the Al Horford contract, the Tobias Harris contract, uh, you know, maybe the lack of young talent, they ended up in a position where even if you didn't want to break up the Joel Embiid-Ben Simmons partnership, if you tried to envision them really reshaping the roster, it felt like one of those guys would have to go just because it didn't seem like there were any other options, almost to no fault of their own. Daryl Lamari's been on the job, what, three weeks? And his first draft day with the team he finds a way to move off Al Horford's contract by attaching the 34th pick and a protected 2025 first rounder and the rights to uh, was a Michich, Michich, one of the one of like their Euro stash guys. Mitch. Yeah, draft and stash guys. Um, yeah, really he, light protection though on that 2025 pick. Fair, which is fair, but worth noting. Um, still, you move off the Horford contract and you end up getting Danny Green and Terrence Ferguson from the Thunder. Danny Green on the move again. Then they turn Josh Richardson, who we both like, but they turn him into, um, they turn him and the 36th pick, so another second rounder, into Seth Curry, who is one of the most cost-effective sharpshooters in the league. And then they also end up with Tyrese Maxey falling to them at number 21. 
And they use the 49th pick on one of the best shooters in the draft, Isaiah Joe, who can contribute pretty much right away, which you can't usually say for second rounders because all the dude does is shoot. And so, like, you end up in this situation where in one fell swoop in one day, you know, as much as, you know, Horford's fallen off, but he, he's not a bad player. And as much as we both like Richardson, the fact is that between Danny Green, Seth Curry, Terrence Ferguson, Tyrese Maxey, and Isaiah Joe, all of a sudden, Maury addressed some of the shooting woes, the need for some shot creation, and he did it all without really sacrificing much, if any, of the defensive upside that we loved about this team. So, yeah, I, I, I just thought they had a fantastic day. I think Maury's off and running in Philly, and I think, you know, I think you can squabble over, like, the talent meter maybe in giving up Horford and and Josh Richardson for Danny Green, Terrence Ferguson, and Seth Curry. But I think if you look at fit and team needs, I think the Sixers are better and more balanced and more flexible today than they were yesterday. And uh, like I said, they were able to do that on the offensive end without really sacrificing much on the defensive end. I, to me, it's an A-plus day. Yeah, uh, definitely they get a needed injection of shooting. I still think, you know, the shooting was an issue, but to me, the biggest issue was and still is with this team that they still don't have a half court creator. And I think that's mitigated a bit because with Curry, especially, he fills a JJ Redick like role, I think, for them in that he may not be the greatest on ball creator, but he's an off ball creator in that he moves around really effectively without the ball, is going to have a ton of off-ball gravity. And as a guy who's going to be able to fly off of screens and run dribble handoffs with Embiid, that just allows them to sort of grease the wheels of their offense, I think, and unglue defenders from Embiid in a way. Uh, It makes it harder for defenders to sag off of him and Ben Simmons as well. And... It's not like you're not just adding a shooter in Seth Curry, right? You're adding one of the best three-point shooters in the league. And and he can create a little bit with the ball in his hands too. But I still think that that weakness, that shortcoming on this team is pronounced. So I'm not convinced that like their offensive issues are just solved here. But I think that was a good piece of business. And, you know, you mentioned them getting off the Horford contract, which was obviously super important. And... You know, what was great, I think, about the Richardson for Curry deal from their perspective is they save money against the tax for this year because Curry costs about three million less. But they also get more long term security with him because Richardson was on what was virtually an expiring deal with the player option for 2021, 22. But Curry's got two more years on his deal after this one. So they simultaneously save money in the short term, but get more security in the long term. So I like that for them. I like his fit there. And I definitely like this roster better than I liked it a day ago. It's a lot more balanced now. I I just still think that ultimately they're going to have to find a point guard, right? Like a, a half-court point guard. Ben Simmons is an open-court point guard, but he's not a half-court point guard. And I think that's the guy that they're ultimately going to need to find if they want this thing to really work. But when I say work, I mean, you know, to the extent that they're going to be a legitimate championship contender I think that is still going to be the thing that holds them back here like I just I've written this before with Simmons and Embiid I don't think it's as simple as surround them with four shooters because 
neither of them are good enough playmakers, I don't think, in the half court for that to be a solution. Uh, they need somebody who can help create advantages for them rather than them being the guys who are consistently relied upon to create advantages for other people. Yeah, as I've said about 50 times in the last 50 weeks, they still need someone who can just competently dump the ball into Joel and be like, you talk about a half-court initiator, they need one. But like, it's as simple as someone who can even throw a friggin' entry pass. And on that hand, I, I do agree with you that they haven't really addressed that yet, so... I don't know, but, you know, pretty damn good start for Daryl Morey in Philly. And to that point, I will say, like, I think that Curry-Richardson deal works for both teams. Like, I think Richardson makes a lot of sense for the Mavs. And so it's the rare win-win to me where I think both teams, again, forget, like, the, the talent meter part of it. But when you look at fit and team needs, I think it's the rare trade where both teams legitimately got better. I, I couldn't agree more. I think Richardson's a great fit in Dallas. Their biggest weakness last year to me was perimeter defense. And he had a bit of a down year defensively in Philly. I was kind of disappointed. I was really high on his defense coming in. And as far as just like containing dribble penetration, he honestly wasn't that good last year. I still think he's really good at sort of fighting around screens and bringing ball pressure from behind if you're playing a drop coverage. And I think he'll really help in Dallas. Perfect guy, honestly, to slot alongside Doncic in the backcourt because... Luca is an offensive point guard, but he's not built to defend point guards. And Richardson is a solid point guard defender. So I think that's going to be a nice backcourt fit. And I I thought Richardson also had a pretty disappointing shooting season last year, but I think that was partly the product of the fact that because the Sixers needed him to create with the ball in his hands, he wound up shooting a lot more off the dribble than off of the catch. And I think he's a lot more comfortable shooting off of the catch. And that's something he's obviously going to get to do a lot more of alongside Luca and Dallas. I know. Uh, where do you want to go next here? As far as, as far as fascinating stuff that happened on draft day. Um, I mean, I'll mention the wolves because they had the number one pick and I know like we laugh about how bad this draft is. So it's, it's not a typical number one pick, but look, I, I don't necessarily believe in the tandem of Carl Anthony Towns and uh, D'Angelo Russell. And I don't, I still don't believe in this Wolves team as even one that's really going to threaten for a playoff spot. But I did think, at the very least, they had an interesting day and they probably had a good day. Look, Anthony Edwards is far from a sure thing. There were a lot of concerns there with some of the things he's openly said, maybe about his passion for the game and how he views the game of basketball. And, you know, a guy like that and that talented, but maybe that, um, I don't want to say undisciplined, but maybe not as focused and a little raw you probably want a guy like that ending up in a situation um, that's more professional and, you know, the better infrastructure around him. But the fact of the matter is the Timberwolves added a really, 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 really high upside three level score who can fill the basket at the NBA level basically immediately. Um, you know, if, if this is the guy you're projecting to be like a number two or number three option behind Carl Anthony Towns and D'Angelo Russell or someone else, like that's one hell of an offense. High octane does not begin to describe it and then um you know you want to talk about a good piece of business then the Timberwolves end up trading the 17th pick to Oklahoma City to bring Ricky Rubio home to bring uh Ricky Rubio back to Minnesota and to get the 25th and 28th picks and then they package the 25th pick with another one of their picks I think it was like 33 or something send it to the Knicks to get another pick they use it on uh Argentinian swingman Leandro Balmoro but the 28th pick 
that they got in the deal where they also acquired Ricky Rubio, they end up using it on Jaden McDaniels, who went 28th, but you know, a lot of people had him projected potentially as high as the lottery and and more mid-first round, uh, was considered one of the highest upside guys. Again, very raw, but if you're talking about drafting for upside and swinging for the fences, getting Anthony Edwards and Jaden McDaniels uh, in the same draft and you know, getting Jaden McDaniels as part of a trade where you just give up the 17th pick and also get back Ricky Rubio. I think it was a, it was a good day for Minnesota and they obviously, obviously still have a ton of work to do to build anything resembling a respectable defense and probably to even sniff playoff contention. But look, between Towns, between Russell, between Edwards, between McDaniels, they still have Jarrett Culver, they have Josh Okogie, like the amount of young talent there is undeniable. Rubio should bring some stability. Gershon Rosa seems to know what he's doing. Like maybe they can start to, you know, put some of these pieces together, ship some out in smarter trades. Like, I don't know, but there at least seems to be a path towards something. And I know there's been paths in Minnesota before and they've never led to anywhere unless it was one year with Jimmy Butler. But like, I don't know. I feel like, you know, the draft is supposed to be about hope and optimism. And I get that Anthony Edwards is not your traditional number one pick, but I still think given everything that happened on the day, the Timberwolves and their fans can take a lot of hope and optimism from that day. Yeah, I'm torn on the Rubio thing because on the one hand, I don't really see the point of trading down in the draft to get a guy who, A, you know, has some positional overlap with the guy that they've seemingly decided to build around the point guard position in D'Angelo Russell. And... B, like, you know, the Wolves, I don't even think are going to be a playoff team in either of the next two years. So I don't know that I necessarily see the logic there. But on the other hand, I think, you know, the whole Rubio and Phoenix experience showed that there really is value in having a floor raising table setter like that. Uh, A guy who can, you know, organize your offense and put guys in the right spots and just professionalize your team a little bit. And the, the year that he had there, I think in many ways helped set the Suns up for the offseason that they've had this year, where they're actually a team that can be taken seriously to the point that a player like Chris Paul is willing to go and play there. I'm not saying that's going to happen for Minnesota, but I do think there's something to be said for having a guy like that who you call them a stabilizing force. I think that's a good way to put it. And, you know, as far as the overlap with Russell, I think it's not that bad to have two guys who can play really effectively with the ball in their hands and to have that much playmaking in the backcourt. Like those are two really good passers and, you know, defensively, obviously it's going to be a bit of a challenge, but Rubio is a solid defender and that's the kind of guy you want to put next to somebody like Russell in the backcourt, I think. So I could see it working out pretty well. You know, I don't think they're going to be a playoff team, but I think they could be a team that wins 30 plus games and starts moving on a track toward, competency which on a team full of young guys who haven't experienced a lot of success before i think that you know could actually be really important so yeah i thought they had a good day as well and i don't know a lot about mcdaniels aside from just like his physical tools and the fact that he had like a crazy inefficient offensive season in college last year but uh like you said i mean these picks were all about upside and if you're a team in Minnesota's position, bites at the apple is what you're looking for. And if you have a chance 
to draft a guy with that kind of upside who might go bust, but also might be a star. I think that's a swing that you've got to be willing to take, especially at number 28 in the draft. Yeah. And, and just having Ram, uh, Rubio around the youngest team in the league that just got, you know, younger in terms of their top end talent um, and raw can't hurt. Um, so I mentioned earlier that it was just kind of like things were pretty quiet on the trade front after it seemed like, you know, lottery picks might be getting dished out left and right. There were no trades in the lottery. And I thought that was pretty interesting. Did you, I, I know you wrote about Patrick Williams a bit too. Uh, any other kind of lottery picks that surprised you that interest you? I mean, no, like the Patrick Williams one, as I wrote, um, you know, based on the amount of research I could do by, you know, reading and watching. And I think he could end up being the best player in this draft. His measurables are insane. Um, he's a high motor guy, loves to defend, you know, maybe his offensive game is a bit raw, but as you pointed out, um, we were kind of chatting off air his, his free throw percentage, which I think was like 84% in college, maybe makes you feel like the fundamentals and the mechanics are there. So even though he's maybe a bit raw offensively with his shot, you can work on that clearly. And again, when a guy has that kind of measurables and that kind of NBA size and strength and is the rare 19-year-old towards the top of the draft that genuinely seems to have a passion for playing defense, it's a pretty damn good base to start off. So I think the Bulls might have walked away with the best long-term player in the draft at number four, even though it was considered a three-player draft from a star perspective. Um, Denny Dia, I guess, going nine seems like, you know, like, seems like a steal for the Wizards who need high upside guys as well. Um, other than that, I mean, the, the Knicks, like Obi Toppin falling to the Knicks, you know, seems like a New York story and the kind of thing Knicks fans will be really happy about because he's his hometown guy who loves New York. And look, he's such I, a Knicks player too. Like say the kind of players that they've been prioritizing the last few yeah. years, he fits that to a T. And look, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll give him credit for this. Oh, first of all, I don't know how many people know this. Apparently, Obi Toppin's dad was on the friggin' and one mixtape tour, so that's kind of cool. But, um, and I wrote about this too. I mean, the one thing I'll give Obi Toppin credit for is he apparently remained like an insanely loyal and really passionate Knicks fan, despite the fact that he's only 22 years old, which means that since his third birthday, this team has won one playoff series. Um, so full credit to him remaining a Knicks fan. Maybe it shows something about character and loyalty uh, or foolishness. I don't know, but I don't know, man. Like, okay, he, he's an insanely efficient NBA ready scorer, but I, I think the floor is fine. The ceiling to me is like almost non-existent uh, and not just because he's a 22 year old draft pick, but most people in the know seem to think he kind of is what he is. And, you know, he might have a long NBA career as a contributor but they're not going to get anything near star quality from him and then there's also like the point that he's a defensively challenged power forward joining a team with about 13 power forwards and look i know longer i was going to say i know that um so bobby portis they they did not pick up the option right and uh, Taj Gibson. And they waived Taj Gibson. Right. So so there is now some more space there. But still, he's a defensively challenged power forward, uh, joining a team that still includes Julius Randle, I believe. Um, yeah, I feel be like there's going to be a lot of uh, Spider-Man memes. Yeah. Um, they still have Kevin Knox, which whatever. But uh, the one thing I will say is that based on the fact that the Knicks didn't use that pick on, you know, some sort of guard of the future. And yeah, they ended up taking Emmanuel quickly, I think, later in the draft, who's considered like a sweet shooting guard, uh, sweet shooting point guard. But 
I don't think anyone's looking at Emmanuel quickly as their point guard of the future. So given the fact they didn't address the need at point guard, they added their 27th defensively challenged power forward, and then made some moves on Thursday to clear a ton of space that I think now brings them to about $40 million in cap space. At this point, if they don't make the godfather offer for Fred Van Vliet, it's gross negligence. Like, yeah, like, I mean, like that has to be where this is headed, right? It's quite possible. Like they definitely have the space now to do it. He fills a clear area of need and they're basically the last remaining suitor aside from the Raptors themselves that are really in position to make this move because the Pistons were in that mix, but they drafted Killian Hayes and also took on Ariza's contract, which ate into their space. Uh, the Hawks appear to be prioritizing wings uh, in Hayward and Gallinari. So it seems like it's basically just down to the Knicks and Raptors and the Knicks obviously have the space to throw a ton of money at them and, a, and an offer that might make the Raptors uncomfortable and might actually be able to pry Van Vliet away, which I think it's a tough calculus because if you are the Knicks, as much bumbling and competence as there's been, you know, and, and how that's defined the franchise for the last 20 odd years, they're still the Knicks, right? They still are a free agent draw in theory. And so I think to tie up that level of cap space in a very competent point guard in Fred Van Vliet, but not one who profiles really as a franchise player moving forward, I do think there's more opportunity cost there for a team like the Knicks than there would be for a team like the Pistons where they can be pretty well assured that they're not going to be able to do anything better with that cap space in the future. So I think that's the one hang up and the one thing that might prevent them from throwing the full bag at Fred. Like if they could get him at something like, you know, 22 million a year, then I think they'd sign up for that for sure. But if they have to go, you know, 25 or above, which is where I actually think you would start to make the Raptors really uncomfortable about matching. That's when I think the Knicks might reconsider because that, that space is just, and, and here's the other thing, right? Like ultimately they have to put, a competent infrastructure in place to make a potential star free agent actually think about signing there. And they can't just keep it rolling over the space and signing these short-term deals as they did last off season so that every off season they can have space again, because that space isn't worth anything. If the guys that they're pitching free agents on joining are trash. Yes. Thank you. <laughs> so, so I can see it from both sides, and uh, and I'm interested to see how that plays out. You said two very important words in that rant, and those two words were, in theory. <laughs> the Knicks being a free agent destination, in theory. When is the last time, Amari Stoudemire, that the Knicks yes. genuinely... Yeah, Amari Correct. Stoudemire, right. Yeah. A decade you don't need to ago. Finish the, you don't need to yeah. finish that sentence. Yeah. A decade ago. You can make the argument, and in fact, I will make the argument, the very reason that the team that plays in Manhattan, in the friggin' mecca of Madison Square Garden, cannot attract the true star free agents that are actually worth $25 million plus a year is because they have long undervalued the players that are exactly like Fred Van Vliet and overvalued the Fugazi superstars. And so, to me, yes, like, do, do I think... Fred Van Vliet's worth $25 million um, in this NBA market. No, he's probably in like the high teens, low 20s. I think that's a sweet spot. But still, to me, the Knicks overpaying for a guy like Fred Van Vliet 
would actually signal the fact that they are starting to get it and that they do understand you do have to lay some foundation and some building blocks and build a competent, competitive team if you want to be the free agent destination that you should be in theory. You know what I mean? And so, yeah, like, will they have to overpay for Fred Van Vliet to get him? Yes, but I think from New York's perspective, it would be a good overpay. And I think it would actually show that they are on a path to understanding how this all works. Because the alternative is you don't pay Fred Van Vliet. And then as you mentioned off the air, maybe they're doing all this actually to clear some space to bring in Russell Westbrook. And to me, that's the 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 realistic alternate re- reality Knicks where it's like, yeah, that's what we expect them to do. And then they are going to think that next year they're going to be like the favorites for insert free agent name here, you know, where it's like really the prudent thing to do is go spend money on a, a, a winner like Fred Van Vliet, maybe not the sexiest name, and, and build things out properly. And that's all I got to say about James Dolan's clown show. <laughs> I mean... With those waivers today, you know, declining the option on Portis, waving Taj Gibson, waving Alfred Payton, they have enough space to just absorb Westbrook outright. And if the Rockets are just essentially looking to get off of Westbrook, maybe pull in like a mediocre asset like Kevin Knox, but not take back any bad salary, which seems like that's probably what the Rockets would be looking to do then the Knicks are now the team that can just absorb Westbrook's salary and they wouldn't have to send anything back for matching purposes. So it's not crazy to think that maybe that's what's going on here, but we'll find all this out very shortly because free agency is is starting on Friday um, and that is going to help bring a lot of clarity to all of this. Mm-hmm. Um, you mentioned but, the Rockets. Yeah, I think we should mention that the Rockets... Okay, so we take this back to where it began, which is with them offloading Robert Covington for Trevor Ariza, the 16th pick in yesterday's draft, and a protected future first rounder from the Blazers. And then two days later on draft night, they turn around, flip Ariza with that 16th overall pick to the Pistons for another future first that is top 16 protected for the next four years, then I think becomes top 10 protected after that, then top nine protected, and then unprotected. So it, it's possible because it's the Pistons that that pick won't convey in the next four years, and it could turn out to be a better pick than 16th overall. I would say it's probably likely that sometime in the next four years, the Pistons will wind up being good enough that their pick will fall outside the top 16. So they traded the 16th overall pick for what will likely turn out to be a worse pick a couple years down the road. Also that they could get off of Trevor Ariza's expiring contract. And ultimately they, what they did is they traded Robert Covington, one of the most valuable role players in the league for what turned out to be a, a protected Blazers pick in 2021. That That's the deal that they got, that's if I'm understanding this correctly. Correct, yeah. And I, I think, 
you know, th- th- this was done under the pretense of allowing them access to the full mid-level exception, but they gave away Robert Covington. So who gives a shit? Like they're not going to be able to sign anyone with the mid-level that's going to be better than Robert Covington. And I think if we were looking at this with clear eyes and looking at the big picture and seeing how this team has been operating for the last two years, what this deal was really done in service of was staying out of the luxury tax, saving Tillman Fertitta some money. Because I, I just, look, maybe maybe there will be a rewrite to this because they, they will use that full MLE to get somebody really valuable. I know Christian Wood's name has been thrown around and I think he'd be a great fit there. They created this $12 million trade exception that there's no way they're going to use. I, I just, I can't find a way to see this as anything more than a shameless, transparent, cost-cutting maneuver while they're in the middle of trying to convince their MVP caliber franchise player to stick around. Like the optics of this are so bad and so dumb. It's just, oh man, I, I feel for Rockets fans, honestly. I really do. I only have two things to say. One, I think it's very appropriate that we segued from the Knicks to the Rockets. Second, I think Kendrick Perkins was onto something when he called him Tillman for Tito because this guy is not worth <laughs> us calling him by his name. That's, that's, it? All, that's all I've got to say about that. Because <laughs> Nick's, Nick's West is what the Rockets are now. And it's because of Tillman Fertito. And, and on the pod that we did a couple days ago, I was here essentially trying to justify that trade, saying, look, Covington was a great role player, but Ariza can sort of give you about 70% of what Covington gave you, and you pull in two first-rounders, which you really need to help try and replenish your asset cupboard that you've totally emptied out over the last few years. I, I was here trying to justify it, trying to defend them. And then for them to turn around and trade Ariza along with their pick in this draft, just to get what could be a worse pick somewhere down the road was pretty vexing to say the least. I, I do, you know, as far as teams with bare asset cupboards that actually managed to get better on draft day, I'll throw the Clippers out there, man. I I thought that was a nice move for them to get Luke Kennard and kind of some rabbit out of a hat stuff, given how little they had to work with. And I've seen some people say they don't think Kennard is actually any better than Landry Shamit. I don't. Obviously, this is a (laughs) three-team deal. Shamit went to the Nets, uh, the the Nets' number 19 pick, uh, along with Rodney Magruder, went to the Pistons, and Kennard went to the Clippers. I definitely think the Clippers are getting the better player in this deal. And which makes me a little bit curious as to why the Nets did this, because if you sort of reverse engineer it, like they could just basically deal with the Pistons directly and get Luke Kennard if that's the player they wanted. But they obviously preferred Shamit, uh, which I find interesting because to me, Kennard is as good, if not a better shooter than Shamit, at least as far as their track records go. Kennard was better on spot-ups last year, and he was much better on pull-ups. And that's where I think the big difference lies, is that Shamit is, for now, more of a specialist and a guy who moves really well without the ball and is a great spot-up shooter, but with the ball in his hands, can't do a whole heck of a lot. Whereas Kennard can actually shoot it off the dribble, is really effective, I think, coming off of handoffs, can actually run some pick and roll, averaged four and a half assists per 36 minutes last year. 
I think it's a, a nice get for the Clippers. Like they didn't have a ton of means to improve. And I think this nudges their ceiling a little bit higher. Yeah. And look, I, I, I don't even know if I like Luke Kennard more than Landry Shamit, but I will agree that they might, even if they nudge their ceiling up like a quarter of an inch, given how constrained they seem to be and given the level they're playing at, like when you're in the all or nothing, we're trying to win a championship level of your franchise progression, moving your ceiling up a quarter of an inch actually does like mean something. And so sure, if they were able to do that, you know, I, I agree that they, they had a good day. I just, I'm not sure if they actually did that. Um, you don't, you don't think they got any better? I, I, I don't know. I'm not sure. I don't, I don't know if Luke Kennard is any better than Landry Shamit. I, I definitely think he is. I, I think for all the reasons I mentioned, like he can actually, he's not just a spot up shooter. Like he does have some on ball creativity. He can be a playmaker. He can be a shot creator, you know, for himself or for his teammates. And, Maybe that's not the thing that the Clippers need more than anything else right now. He's not the point guard that Kawhi Leonard reportedly wants them to go out and get. But to add a, a shooter of his caliber who also has some off-the-dribble juice, I think it was a nice piece of business. And I think it's possible the reason the Nets preferred Shamit to Kennard is that Shamit has two years of team control left, whereas Kennard's going to hit unrestricted free agency next year. But I just don't think the Clippers care about that. Like, I think if he has a good season, they'll be perfectly fine matching any offer sheet for him because Steve Ballmer just doesn't really care about luxury tax payments. And if he has a so-so year and they decide they're comfortable letting him walk, then fine. It was still a worthwhile play to try and upgrade their team for this one year that they have everything riding on. I do I do like the idea of trading for a guy like Kennard in a contract year because he is a guy that I think maybe hasn't fully lived up to or or consistently kind of captured what everyone expects of him. And I feel like those guys, if they're going to do that, will do it in their first real contract years. What do you think of LaMelo to the Hornets? I, I mean, I think it was like expected in the sense that, look, I think he's the ultimate boomer bust prospect, but you want to talk about a franchise that just needs a star, man, like... The, the Hornets need to swing for the fences when it comes to upside. And with Edwards and Wiseman off the board, if, if you want potential upside, LaMelo's the way to go. And look, that's a franchise in a market where putting more butts in seats is important. And the potential star appeal, the novelty appeal of LaMelo and everything that comes with the ball family, uh, it, it might mean something tangible to Charlotte and to Michael Jordan's franchise. And we get... Um, plenty of opportunities for LeVar versus Michael content. So yeah, I think it made sense in a lot of ways and I'm not sure how much basketball sense it will end up making. <laughs> well, I'll just say, and I'm not a draft Nick, like I did a, a bit of last second cramming and trying to watch these top prospects and form some sort of an opinion on them. But I, I do think it's worth noting that the vast majority of the people who study this stuff and have been preparing for this for the last year, almost uniformly believe that LaMelo is the most talented player in this draft. So yes, I do think just given his profile, there is some bust potential there. But like you said, for a team like Charlotte to get potentially the most talented player in the class at number three, uh, with a chance to transform their team, and like you said, maybe be a draw, give people a reason to tune in, 
uh, you mentioned butts and seats. I don't know when that's actually going to happen. <laughs> yeah. But get some eyeballs on some TV screens at the very least for this coming season. Uh, I- I'm really interested to see what he actually looks like. like. I think of all the players in this draft, he's probably the one that I'm actually most curious and most excited to watch this coming season. And even like outside of the novelty factor, just from a basketball, like stylistically, he's also got the potential to be the most entertaining to watch too. So it's not just the, you know, the whole like circus act of it either. Um, Anything else you want to hit on before we go? I don't really have any other like um, uh, basketball related takeaways from the night, but I did want to mention that I actually thought, look, I mean, it's never going to, for the guys being drafted, I understand, you know, it's never going to match walking on the stage, shaking Adam Silver's hand, being in a, you know, full arena of fans cheering or booing or whatever. But I did think that the the circumstances making it so that these guys were actually sitting with their families. And I know at the draft, they can be sitting with their families too at a table, but like sitting at home with their families on a couch, like enjoying family time when they were drafted, I thought it made for like some pretty cool and special moments. It it seemed to like make all the guys more emotional than usual. And again, I I don't know if it's maybe just because they were in like the comfort more of home and they weren't just at a table in an arena. Like they were on a couch with their parents or their grandma or friends around them, whatever the case may be. I thought that was really interesting. And I thought it it was different obviously. And it made maybe for some better and more um, honestly compelling TV. I thought, uh, the fact that they had all these like little pre-recorded things for all of the top picks, you know, where like you learn, I think it was Patrick Williams, you le- end up learning about his little flower shop with his mom or someone else. I can't remember who it was that played the piano, but usually in that sense, they might do a quick little interview with the guy on draft night or roll some scouting viz. But um, as part of this setup, they I feel like we learned more about the guys that weren't just like the top two or three picks. And so, yeah, I just, I thought, I thought it was like good kind of wholesome TV in that sense, maybe different than a traditional draft. I think there are legitimate concerns about uh, some of these super spreader events that were happening in some of these guys' homes and banquet halls and wherever the hell they were having parties. And other than that, let's see, do I have any other takeaways from a very different draft? Oh yeah, I think uh, two things I wanted to mention. The the moment, I don't know if you caught it, I'm sure you did by now, where... Uh, I think it was his little brother, like RJ Hampton. His little brother gives him the Bucks hat, but it's he's not actually going to the Bucks. And I don't know if it was his dad or an uncle or like some old like you could hear him say something was like pissed off. And like the little brother, like, what are you doing? Probably like, what are you doing? We told you not to give him that hat. And like chucks it away. And then you see someone else like scrounging to find the right hat. So I thought that was a hilarious moment that we'll probably never see again, or we'll hopefully never see again because a draft will never be interrupted by a pandemic again. And um The other thing I have to shout out is not just because the Raptors drafted him, but the the Malachi Flynn family photo where every guy in the family is wearing, um, yeah, I didn't, I I didn't want to say, I wasn't sure if I should say that, but, um, is there like another name for that shirt? I mean, there's, there's what we call an Italian, which translates to like undershirt. So yeah, it's like an Italian, what we'd consider an Italian undershirt. Obviously it's not Italian. It's just like a tank undershirt but yeah. um yeah i just i had to point that out because i was dying of laughter looking at that and then i even tweeted that i i don't know if there's any italian in that family but his family taking a family photo where all the men were wearing tank undershirts gives him 
an instant before he's even played a game, pies on point. And that is one more than Andrea Bargnani ever accrued as a member of the Toronto Raptors. So he's already off and running. I, I think the one, the one thing I'll add before we sign off is that this is going to be probably a really tough transition for these guys because players are reporting to camp in less than two weeks. And I mean, preseason games are starting in less than a month. Actual NBA games are starting in a little more than a month. There is no summer league or anything else, you know, to get acclimated. So it's a quick turnaround. And I know, obviously, there's been a long layoff for these guys. Like, you know, they, they haven't been playing college ball since March and presumably have had lots of time to prepare physically and have been training. But uh, they're really just getting thrown into this. So I think it could be a bit of a bumpy start to a lot of these players' careers. And I think we should probably be patient with them and recognize why that is and uh, not expect too much of them right away. Yep, I agree. Um, shout out Abinov in Fort McMurray, Alberta. Hope I didn't butcher his name. He did send me the way to pronounce so I hope I am pronouncing it right. Abinov in Fort McMurray, Alberta, who tweeted at us about, I think, what number? Do you Did you write it down? What number episode he started listening with? I think uh, 23. Yeah, and, and he stuck around, which I think we're now episode 156. So big shout out to Abhinav. And also, he actually, before he tweeted at us, I had already had him penciled in for a future fan shout out because on, uh, on one of our YouTube videos, he went in and commented, any other pound the rock listeners in here or something like that. Uh, so yeah, shout out to Abhinav in Fort McMurray, Alberta. And um, again, I, I know we've mentioned in the last few episodes, but um, if, if you're a fan, if you've got feedback for us, maybe even if you don't like us, which I don't understand why you'd be listening to episode 156, if that was the case, but let us know on some sort of uh, social media channel. Let us know where you're listening from and we will shout you out. I can't wait to shout out one of our haters. Yeah. I look forward to that. Um, uh, yeah. I'll talk to you soon. I'm looking forward to Friday, 6 p.m. Eastern yeah. time when the free agent bonanza will begin. And I'm going to try and catch up on a little bit of sleep between now and then. I suggest you do the same. And to all our listeners, thanks for tuning in. We'll talk to you soon. Yeah.